Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. Each week, Jake and I will endeavor to have a grace-infused cosmopolitan conversation about the lectionary texts for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the same old song of God's redeeming grace to what feels like an ever-changing and confusing world. And we'll do it all in 25 minutes or less. Jacob, once more into the preach, my friend. We are singing the same old song. And first, before we dig into the text, could we take a moment to plug our friend? Absolutely. Why don't you go for it? Our listener, we did it midstream while we were in Corinth, and that makes it sound like he's a Corinthian. He's at least a Galatian mm. or a Cretan or something. But Greg Strawbridge is a great pastor and musician and podcaster, and he has a great um, lectionary devotional. It, it, you can find it at revised common lectionary devotional.wordpress.com. And it's great stuff. And so if you're a lectionary preacher or if you're in a church that uses the lectionary, uh, this is, you know, really helpful. So. Yeah, and it's there also great because you can take it home and use it with your families. And so, and uh, reminding that the, the smallest church is the family. So, um, yeah, great shout out. And you guys are going to start using it with your church staff, right? Yeah, absolutely. So as we walk through and just kind of get us all focused on the same page as we move towards uh, Sunday. Well, let's move towards Sunday and go right in to the book of Exodus. That's right. Well, this is Who's the your li- favorite Moses, though? Like, <laughs> Hollywood Moses, who's your favorite? Hest- are you a Heston guy? Are you a cartoon guy? Are you a um, Christian Bale guy? Like, yeah. who's your Moses? Right. My Moses, I love Christian Bale. I loved that. I mean, everybody hated it, but I loved that... Um, that movie, Exodus. And so with Christian Bale and I just... Do you, do you know who else loved it? Who? I haven't seen it, but the person whose opinion I take most seriously on film, literature, and television, my wife loved it. Oh, yeah. It was so good. And God as a little baby, like a little kid, it was just excellent. So, um, yeah. And it filled in a lot of the details and added in a lot of midrash. So it was. I thought it was an excellent movie. So... Um, I, 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 am, uh, I prefer Christian Bale over Charleston Heston any day. He's a great Batman, too. You know, what's interesting, though, is just a, a little, little fun fact for everybody, um, that you know, when you see the Ten Commandments in uh, city parks and um, on, uh, in front of courthouses, and you know, it's a big controversy today, and everybody's you know, worried that they're going to take them away, or other people want to put up um, statues to Molech right next to it for religious freedom. But really, well, first of all, as Christians, we are not under the law. We are under the gospel, and as St. Paul says, the law is a ministry of death. Um, But if you look closely, you'll notice that all of those Ten Commandment tablets were placed there. You'll notice there behind them, there's usually an L-O-E right behind it, which stands for the the Lodge of the Order of the Eagle, which uh, was an organization that Charlton Heston belonged to. And they placed all of those Ten Commandments in a lot of city parks and town squares and in front of courthouses as movie promotion for the Ten Commandments, not because of any religious principles of the city or the United States for that matter. I always want to see a commercial for the NRA when Charles Charlton Hester, blessed memory, was still alive. Like, <laughs> the Ten Commandments would have only been an hour long mm-hmm. if I had a gun. 
Yeah, that's I needed right. God to get rid of Pharaoh. Yeah. Because I didn't have a gun. <laughs> that's so true. That would have been great. You know the joke where like God or Moses comes down to the Israelites and says, I've got good news and bad news. What do you want first? Well, give us the good news first. I got the commands from 400 to 10. What's the bad news? I couldn't get him to leave out adultery. Yeah, right. That's... <laughs> Oh man! Well, today is the, uh, the the Sunday that we're moving towards is the last Sunday of Epiphany um, and Eureka. Uh, yeah, the last Sunday of Eureka. We're, we're wrapping away it the up. Paisley. We're we're boxing it up. And uh, what's interesting is is that so uh, uh, the season of Eureka, the season of Epiphany, always begins with the Magi coming to Jesus. The and uh, it always it's it's bookended by the Magi and then the Transfiguration. Uh, the Transfiguration is always the last reading because here Jesus is uh, metamorphosed. Uh, he is transfigured before uh, the disciples' very eyes. And so all of our readings kind of uh, point in that direction today. Um, and we begin with the book of Exodus, which is um, uh, when you read uh, the book of Exodus through the lens of Jesus, as every Christian should do, you begin to see that this is a type and a shadow of the Transfiguration. Yeah, and I think uh, it's it's really interesting. The I mean, this this is one of the big cinematic moments in the Hebrew Bible, right? God, <laughs> you know, coming down and being condescending and being in the presence of Moses. I mean, Paul talks about it. Moses comes down glowing, uh, which is what happens with all of us when we meet God, right? Like we, we don't when we glow. It's it's when we're receptors of divine grace, mm. not when we're trying to figure out that you know, a, a better discipleship program or a better staff leadership mo- module or something like that. It, it, it's when we actually, when you're a murderer, a failed self-champion of your own people who, you know, you're a self-righteous champion of your people and they're like, hey, you're no better than us. You spend a bunch of time. And, you know, the worst thing in the whole Hebrew Bible, right? Like he's tending his father-in-law's sheep. I mean, how bad is that? You're working for your father-in-law. I mean, it's just, I mean, and I have a good father-in-law but I still wouldn't want to work for him. Uh, but but Brevard Childs, yeah, in his com- uh, commentary on Exodus, summarizes uh, chapter 24 this way. But in uh, light of God's complete otherness, parentheses, which occasioned all the concern for purity of body and character, in parentheses, the all-encompassing focus of the chapter falls on God's mercy and gracious condescension. It is this theme which lies at the heart of the witness of the Sinai covenant. So you could, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, you could get caught up on the details of the covenant and miss the condescension in the best sense. I mean, when we say condescending, you're being condescending. You know, you're talking to me like I need help. Mm. Yeah, we all need help. And, and, and the ultimate picture of that, uh, or one of the ultimate pictures of it is in this chapter, which is about our need for help and that uh, God showing us our need for it through a guy that should always be portrayed in film like mm. Christian Bale. Absolutely. Uh, you know what's powerful about this, too, is that in the next chapter is all of the instructions for uh, the tabernacle and how the tabernacle is to be built. And so and on a pr- profound level, the tabernacle kind of represented kind of a movable Mount Sinai uh, where God's present dwelt. And... Um, and 
And so all of these, all of this interaction in here is is about God's presence and where is it dwelt and how does it how is it dwelt, and uh, and so moving forward they'll go with the tabernacle, which is supposed to be kind of if you will a movable Mount Sinai, and uh, this this thrusts us forward to ultimately the one who is tabernacled in all of our midst. You know what I mean? Because of his death and resurrection, he is now. Um, Absolutely everywhere, and uh, and is for us wherever we're at. And um, you know, I'm getting. I've been thinking about this in a very powerful way. And um, you know, because I'm getting ready to go on a pilgrimage to Israel in a couple of weeks. And um, and a lot of people still think that that's a magic place. And indeed, it is a magic place. But what's important, and with the real discovery and and the fulfillment of this passage in Exodus, is in Jesus Christ. And because of His death and resurrection, you know, uh, you can. Engage God absolutely anywhere and everywhere, uh, not just um, not just uh, you know at the base of Mount Sinai any longer. We're an ecumenical podcast, but that is the Protestant face of Sinai. Mm. Amen. Rocky Good. Well, on to Second uh, Peter, um, chapter one, verses sixteen through twenty-one, and. Uh, when it comes to apologetics, this is just one of my uh, favorite passages of all time. Yeah, I like it too. It's a it's a hermeneutically challenging little passage, right? I mean, if you're really if you, it, for pastors who want to really dig in and do some hermeneutical gymnastics, this well, is a good passage. Why Why do you say hermeneutical gymnastics? That's a really interesting term. Well, because you think it, the, the the cleverly devised myth thing, mm-hmm. so like it clearly alludes to the transfiguration. Yeah. So, so are people saying that Peter made that up, or <clears throat> are are they saying is he saying um, it's the foundation for the credibility of his witness? I mean, there's there's some things that like that you could you could lose the forest for the trees but the, the whole thing about cleverly devised myths is interesting because myth is not used much in the new testament but when it is used it's always categorically negative mm-hmm. and myths are these things that are i mean this is why bart says you know you, you can't look at the bible as something like straight history because there's theological interpretation always involved but neither is it myth in the sense of myth is an eternal truth that you don't need the story to get. So like Narcissus, right? You know, the myth of Narcissus, the person that was so in love with himself that he couldn't see another person. And, you know, this woman is crushed because she actually loves him. And then, you know, uh, Aphrodite curses him by making him a Narcissus flower by the river. And all flowers, you know, whenever you see a flower that reminds you, you know, the, uh, the, by, the, by the river, the Narcissus flower, you know, don't be vain. You know, they're, myths are moralistic and they're not connected to life on the ground. But the Bible is, 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 is saga. I mean, it, it, it's redemptive history. Mm. That's why you have all these little uh, details like Jesus was sleeping, you know, at this end of the boat. Or you have all yeah. these weird details because the the eternal truth is never divorced mm-hmm. from the concrete realities of history. Yeah, myth is is everywhere and nowhere. It's someone and no one all at the same time. Uh, that's how John Warwick Montgomery uh, defines uh, myth. And um, and uh, but but 
and indeed, this was the religion that uh, St. Paul was engaging with, um, or St. Peter was engaging with as he went out. And, uh, and what he's, he's trying to, and also, um, um, he's also engaging, a, a, you know, a, a Jewish audience as well, who's like, really? Well, like, we are a people, and we've always been here. And, uh, and what's, uh, so, you know, your story with Jesus, it's all bogus. And, uh, and what St. And what Peter is saying is, is that, no. Absolutely not. This isn't myth. This isn't super history either. Uh, this actually, this actually effing happened. And uh, and this is, and and we this is we are eyewitnesses to this. I mean, it's really serious as a heart attack. This is why I always tell people like the moment they find Jesus's body, the moment I am eighty sixth when it comes to being a Christian. I'm not interested in it at all because it's all a total lie. Saint Peter was a liar. Everybody was a liar. And what St. Peter is doing here in this second epistle is he is really grounding it. And, uh, and this really ties us into kind of the meaning, I think, of uh, on St. Thomas when uh, he sees, when Jesus appears to St. Thomas and he says, blessed are, you, blessed are those who have uh, believed and not seen. Because what St. Peter, uh, what Jesus is telling them is that I'm not going to do this for every Tom, Dick, and Harry. Uh, we rely upon the witness and the testimony of of these apostles, and uh, and our job is to share that message um, uh, because it is rooted in history. It's not scientific. A science is different than history. It's rooted, though, in history, and it actually happened. And these guys are eyewitnesses to it. Yeah, and I feel like what what the witness of the apostles and the prophets. I mean, you know, we have a divided church now. We have a divided church. We've been talking about it for the past few weeks in the, in the first century. Mm-hmm. You know, Corinth was a divided church. But I think one of the things we do is like both the right and the left in the church, the extreme right and extreme left, find out ways to marginalize and domesticate the presence of the Bible in the church. So you say it's inerrant or, you know, you know we, we, we take it so seriously we don't even wrestle with it anymore. Or we take it so seriously we make it myth and metaphor. There's a great uh, lectionary commentary by Erdman's. And uh, R. Donaldson, who I've never read before, but he has he he was um, tasked with this passage, and his concluding paragraph paragraph is as follows: It is clear in any case that in these verses, Second Peter is addressing both the power and danger of biblical texts. Mm. Modern Christians know both well. Biblical texts often speak to us with all the wonder and clarity of the morning star rising in our hearts. These same texts divide us from one another. As we well know, we often choose who will be in or out of a community by how they read or do not read certain texts. Second, Peter witnesses to both. It includes an aggressive, it includes as aggressive an attack on Christian opponents as we have in the New Testament. And it includes a series of wonderful and gentle images of the Christian life. The Bible is a powerful and dangerous text. Mm, indeed it is. Indeed it is. I think... Um... I think going into this, I think this second half is really, I mean, almost what, um, in, in addressing the Jewish audience, uh, what, what St. Peter is addressing here. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed, you know, because it all ultimately finds its meaning in Christ. And um, I always say, say on like non-essentials, there's that great saying, non-essentials charity. And, uh, but on the essentials, there's always got to be unity. 
And, uh, you know, and I think this is one of the beautiful things about, like, how the Episcopal Church does communion. Uh, we invite all baptized Christians to, uh, to the rail to receive communion, because on that essential, on the idea of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, there has to be unity, and that's where our witness is found, how we interpret what happens in that bread and wine, um, you know, all of those things. That they're very, very important, and not to downplay them, but ultimately... Um, uh, this message and this prophecy is fully confirmed in in Christ, who is our Savior. Your own personal Jesus Someone to hear your prayers Someone who cares Your own personal Jesus Someone to hear your prayers, someone who's there. Let's turn to the gospel, my friend. The transfiguration. Yeah, here we have Jesus metamorphosed. Um, his entire being lights up. I, I've had my being light up, but it was not <laughs> virtuous. So it's a very powerful, powerful, uh, powerful scene, and uh, it begins with Jesus going up with um, Peter, James, and uh, the brother John, and they go to this high mountain, and uh, there before them, all of a sudden, Jesus is transfigured, um, and uh, uh, God, this must have been just a, a crazy and insane scene. And then all of a sudden, you have Moses and Elijah popping up to the left and the right. You have the culmination of the law and Moses, and you have the culmination of the prophets. And there they are, and they are sitting there chatting with Jesus, probably talking about how Jesus is going to fulfill all that they had come to do. And mountains, I mean, it's interesting how much mountains play into Matthew's gospel and also just the... Um, biblical narrative in general. Benedict the Sixteenth in his wonderful volume, which is an ecumenical podcast. We quote him liberally. He's always ratsy to me, but uh, <laughs> he says that, you know, the mountains serve, like, like you know, once again, this mountain serves as it did in the Sermon on the Mount and in the night spent by Jesus in prayer as the locus of God's particular closeness. And he says, when we inquire into the meaning of the mountain, the first point is, of course, the general background of mountain symbolism. The mountain is the place of ascent, not only outward, but also inward ascent. It is a liberation from the burden of everyday life, a breathing in of the pure air of creation. It offers a view of the broad expanse of creation, and in its beauty, it gives one an inner peak to stand on and an intuitive sense of the creator. History then adds to all this the experience of God who speaks and the experience of the passion culminating in the sacrifice of Isaac and the sacrifice of the lamb that points ahead to the definitive lamb sacrificed on Mount Calvary. Moses and Elijah were privileged to receive God's revelation on the mountain, and now they are conversing with the one who is God's revelation in person and on the mountain. That's really good. I wonder what Pope Benedict is doing right now. We need to get him on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That'd be amazing. But uh, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting, too, a thing a lot of people want to hit on is uh, Peter um, uh, wanting to set up three, uh, three booths, three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, when all of a sudden this big, huge cloud descends upon them. And, uh, you know, and uh, that is, um, we have a tendency to uh, want to... Um, 
want to want to equate the law and the prophets and Jesus all the same. But uh, the point being in that is that um, actually Jesus is the fulfillment of all of them. Peter's behavior here just demonstrates uh, the nature of the human psyche, right? Like we can only have good things in reception. Mm. We can't control them. So, you know, you have a good retreat experience, right? Mm. And then that experience fades and you say, well, if we just sing the same songs, if we just get the same retreat speaker, if we just use the same format, we try to build the tents, right? Mm. Or, you know, when, hey, your marriage was good this year, you know, like the third year, and it's not good in the sixth year. If we just go back to the third year and redo all the things, all things, you know, if I just, what I did good in that sermon was this. So now I'm going to get the formula together when it, it it's all tent building. Mm. <laughs> like instead of looking at the tabernacling one, we try to build our own tabernacles. I mean, like Bart says, all religion is unbelief, including and especially Christian religion. Mm. I- when it becomes re- anything other than reception, of the revelation of divine love and grace, uh, we spoil it. (laughs) Well, this is very powerful, and I think it's at that moment, you know, where you hear once again the voice of the Lord say, this is my son, the beloved, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Don't go chasing experience. But when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. And uh, that is a very very scary thing, to be given only the word of God alone. to be given Jesus alone, um, you know. No, I want. I want to hang on to something. I, I want to contribute to something. But it's, uh, you know, uh, it's in that moment that we just hear. You know, this is my well beloved son. Listen to him. And then uh, it's in that moment that we also, though, on our knees, that we can hear God's voice through Jesus say, "Get up and do not be afraid." Amen to that. And you know. Can I quote from Benedict once more? Uh, you know, I'm starting to bristle, but go ahead. I'm just right. kidding. So, so he, uh, <laughs> it's interesting because this text is tied in with Exodus 24 in the lecture. That's right. He actually says that, you know, he thinks that the historic connection is to the Feast of Tabernacles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Uh, and he has some interesting historical arguments for that. He's a German, you know, he knows everything about history. He's a German. So he quotes um. Gregory of Nyssa here, he says, Indeed, the Lord has pitched the tent of his body among us and has thus inaugurated the Messianic age. Following this line of thought, Gregory of Nyssa reflected on the connection between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Incarnation in a magnificent text. He says that the Feast of Tabernacles, though constantly celebrated, remained unfulfilled. For the true Feast of Tabernacles had not yet come. According to the words of the prophet, however, an allusion in Psalm 118.27, God, the Lord of all things, has revealed himself to us in order to complete the construction of the tabernacle of our ruined habitation, mm. human nature. That's powerful. And I think, you know, and, and I think that's incredibly fitting, especially as you move forward in Matthew's gospel. The next scene uh, in Matthew 17, is a child who's possessed by a demon and uh, whom the disciples can't get out. And, you know, and I think this is just such a, such a ref- like these two passages placed back to back is such a reflection of the Christian life. You know, we, we kind of move from sometimes having a very powerful experience with God to um, 
having a very powerful experience of God to like life and uh, and life is actually lived mostly in failure it's lived below the mountaintop uh, that's where the Christian life is found and really in the moments of those failures and difficulties at the base of the mountain sometimes the only thing you've got is Jesus actually the only thing you not sometimes the only thing you've got is Jesus and so um, you know and it's by faith, when, when, when that has grasped hold of our heart, that we can get up and do not be afraid. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that Benedict says in Luke's gospel, I think the Greek there is something like his exodus, or, it, you know, it, it's the same word for exodus. Like, mm. this is Jesus's exodus, but right. it's the cross. And, you know, he, all of Israel's rituals start in human nature, right? In, in what we, they start with natural theology. Right. So stuff like the Feast of Tabernacles is rooted to harvesting cycles or things like, you know, basic things that happen on the ground in common human existence. Then what happens is God steps in and acts in in real history. And then that thing is reimagined. And it really becomes, wait, wait, God, it's not just the same damn thing over and over in cycles and circles. Mm. But God really acts. But then what I think what Gregor of Nyssa catches on to is Peter's almost still, you know, he's caught up in religion before the gift. Like, right. wow, wait, wait, it's right. not just eternal cycles, but it's eternal history. And if we can just rebuild it. And, and, and Benedict talks about how actually all these festivals eventually get caught up into messianic hope. Mm. That they realize that that history is not the wrong vein or the, the wrong <laughs> intuition, but the true holy history comes when the true tabernacler <laughs> comes. And, you know, and we're always people of hope. Amen. Because if there's hope for you and me, who couldn't there be hope for? Right. Absolutely. Well, I want to encourage everybody, if you're in the Houston area this Sunday, to go hear uh, Mr. Scott Jones preach at uh, Church of the Holy Spirit, Episcopal Church. And uh, he'll be expounding on these texts at um, our wonderful friend, uh, Josh Condon's church, Church of the Holy Spirit. Jake's just going to email me his sermons. So That's right. It. So don't don't <laughs> listen to Jake's podcast this week because I'm just going to be cribbing. Yeah, right. So good. Well, uh, it is. Um, have a have a great week, everybody, and um, happy uh, happy sermon prayer. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, go to our website mbird.com. If you like what you heard. Please go over to iTunes, give us a rating, and write a review, hopefully a favorable one. It helps so much. And maybe share it with a friend via social media. If you have thoughts, comments, or questions, feel free to email me at scottjones at mbird.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week.